I think this is a notoriously difficult parable to preach on, and given the events in Israel the past 20, 48 hours, it's even more so. The top-level reading of this parable basically says that Israel is no longer worthy to be called the children of God, uh, that they have um, squandered their inheritance. They have defrauded their master and Lord God. They have they have borne false witness against God. And the punishment is that the kingdom will be taken away from them and given to a nation, to a people that actually bears fruits of righteousness. And so this kind of reading of it is, is valid, but it's been used, I think, for thousands of years to justify uh, a type of anti-Semitism that certainly just needs to be contemned at the beginning of the sermon and, and any reading of the, of the parable. That having been said, let's try to walk through it and see what is going on. Um, Jesus is telling a story to the chief priests and the Pharisees, the representatives of the kingdom of Judah at this point, which is a a, a suzerainty of the Roman Empire. It's a very degraded form of of the kingdom of Israel centuries after, after its prime. And what he's doing here is he's describing three kinds of evil and malice that Israel holds in its heart, in its collective heart, if you will. First, Jesus is talking about the historic malice between the priests and the prophets of Israel. So you had two sorts of religious expression in ancient Israel that we see in the Old Testament. You have the priestly system, which was focused around the temple and focused on uh, religious sacrifice for sins, laws of purity. Uh, That's where all of that comes from, the Levitical law that, that David mentioned. And then you have the prophets who are sent by God to call the people back, not so much always to the letter of the law, but to the spirit of the law. You have examples of people who are both, like Moses, who was a prophet and and a lawgiver, and really also a king. But throughout the Old Testament, you see this fight going on between the prophets and the priests. And the priests, unfortunately, are the ones who tend to corrupt the religion of Israel. And they're often in league with the throne, with the crown, with whether it's the kingdom of Israel or the kingdom of Judah after the division. Uh, They often are responsible for bringing in uh, foreign or pagan uh, acts uh, of worship, uh, worshiping false gods, worshiping the gods of the neighbors. Very often this involves sexual indulgence and uh, other kinds of depravities. So we see that uh, fight throughout the Old Testament. Uh, The prophets uh, with the king and uh, king's armies would often hunt, uh, sorry, the priests would often hunt and kill these prophets. Second, Jesus is talking about the contemporary malice in the hearts of some towards the Messiah. Verses 37 and 38 here are clearly messianic. Jesus is speaking of himself when he says, finally, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And a verse uh, later, Jesus prophesies his own death. He says, and they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and kill him. And symbolically, Jesus is executed where? Outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. He's, he's literally outside of the vineyard uh, when, he, when he is killed. So there's this, this refusal in the heart of Israel, the collective heart of Israel, to accept the Messiah. Third, Jesus describes the personal malice towards him as the Messiah, as the Christ. 
Throughout the Gospels, there's this question, who do you say that I am? Who do men say that I am? You are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. So there's a personal hostility towards Jesus here. Verse 46 tells us that the chief priests and Pharisees sought to arrest Jesus, and their anger is directed towards him, and doubly so because the people hold Jesus to be a prophet. And a couple of chapters later in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus will exclaim, he'll look over the city of Jerusalem and he'll exclaim, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. So if Jesus' meaning were not clear before, it certainly is now. This parable is one of those parables that's on the nose, right? It's not one of those parables where you see the disciples later on pull Jesus aside and say, okay, tell us what that really meant. This one's on the nose. Even the chief priests and the Pharisees get it. Verse 45 tells us, when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. So even the priests and the Pharisees know that it would be wrong to to deny the Messiah when the Messiah comes, uh, but they act like gatekeepers. They're the ones who are going to vet anyone who puts himself forward as the Messiah, as the Christ, and they're going to vet him and declare to the people whether or not this person is the Messiah or not. And they're holding on to that power, the power that that gives them. And in their hearts, they know that Jesus is the Messiah, but they don't like what he's saying because he's a threat to their power. And so they're going to do everything they can to suppress the knowledge of the fact that he is the Messiah up to plotting to kill him. So that's the point of this sort of question and answer that, that we see in the parable. Jesus asks, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? And the Pharisees and the chief priests correctly reply, he will put those miserable wretches to death and let the vineyard out to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus is is clever here in that he's now gotten the chief priests and Pharisees basically to pronounce sentence on themselves, to pronounce their own punishment, which then Jesus turns around on them and convicts them with the very words of Scripture. He says, have you never read in the scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? You builders, you chief priests, you Pharisees, you builders of Israel, you've rejected the cornerstone. I'm the cornerstone. I'm the Messiah. I'm the Christ. You know what? It's not for you to decide when and if the Messiah has come or even who the Messiah is. So he's taking the religious leaders, even the political leaders, and he's pulling them back down into their place. The chief priests and Pharisees know full well who Jesus is, and yet they still bear false witness against him and plot to arrest him. And that's what this parable hangs on, the idea of false witness. They're not telling the truth about who Jesus is. They're bearing false witness. In this parable, we see the chief priests and Pharisees convicted. They know the parable is about them. They're convicted Jesus is challenging them specifically, but their conviction does not result in repentance. And we look at another person in today's reading, and that person is Paul. Paul was once a Pharisee. He was once one of these people, these chiefs of Israel, who opposed the Messiah, even to the point of killing early Christians. Paul understood, eventually, through an encounter, who Jesus was. He was convicted. But unlike the chief priests and Pharisees in today's parable, that conviction leads to repentance. And Paul describes what that repentance is like when he speaks of the confidence that he used to have before he repented, the confidence in the flesh. 
And Paul writes, if anyone thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, literally a killer of the church, and to righteousness, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. So Mr. Parshall, he did keep all 615 laws. If it's not clear to you what Paul is doing here, he's reciting his pedigree and listing his resume. And I think that's a moment for all of us to pause and think, how are we confident in the flesh? What have we done? What can we boast of? And more importantly, who's behind that? Who gives us reason to boast? Who's, who are our patrons? How are we involved in a system that props us up and gives us confidence to be in, live in the flesh? I think that more often than not, our reasons for confidence in the flesh and bearing false witness are closely linked. Because if we're dependent on the powerful, if we're dependent on a corrupt system like the chief priests and Pharisees, who themselves are bearing false witness, then we're not only tempted, but we're incentivized to bear false witness as well. People sometimes ask, why are things going so crazy today in in the world? Why are things the way they are? Can't people see? And one of the responses I've learned to say to that, I didn't make it up, I can't claim credit, but, but you will seldom see what's wrong when you're paid not to see it. That's sort of what's going on here. And later this temptation, later this incentivization to go along with the bearing of false witness will play out in the arrest and trial of Jesus when the crowds themselves are manipulated to shout, crucify him and condemn him. What looks like an act of democracy here is really a subtle form of sophistication, sophisticated manipulation. There's always a system of spoils at work that rewards those who think and speak in the right way. But Jesus comes to spoil that system of spoils. Christ comes to dispossess the present leaders of the world and give his kingdom back to his people. Verses 38 and 39 foreshadow Christ's crucifixion on the cross. It reads, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. Now, the chief priests and Pharisees are busy accusing Jesus of bearing false witness about himself by saying or letting people believe that he is the Messiah. And they have secretly decided amongst themselves to put an end to that. Israel, as represented by her leaders, her chief priests and her Pharisees, mean to kill Jesus for bearing false witness in their minds. And so now Jesus must turn around and kill Israel in recompense. And that's what the meaning of verse 44 is, Matthew 21, verse 44. Jesus says, and the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. So there is a recompense and a judgment that Jesus is speaking of here. Now, to understand this verse, we actually have to go back into the law of Moses to some verses in Deuteronomy that deal with trying cases of false witness. Deuteronomy, Moses says in Deuteronomy, if a malicious witness arises to accuse a person of wrongdoing, then both parties to the dispute shall appear before the Lord, before the priests and the judges who are in office in those days, The judges shall inquire diligently, and if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, and I'm putting this in emphasis here, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. 
so shall you purge the evil from your midst. So what Jesus is doing here, the way this works is false witness has been born against Jesus, but that is true, proves to be uh, a lie. And so those who meant to kill Jesus now must be killed. So if you ever wonder why the titles for Jesus of prophet, priest, judge, and king matter, right? We say those titles of Jesus. We drag them out at Christmas time, especially prophet, priest, judge, and king. If you've ever wondered why those titles matter and apply to Jesus, these verses from Deuteronomy and this parable will explain why. As prophet, Jesus bears witness against Israel for lying about who the Messiah is. As priest and judge, Jesus makes inquiry per the law of Moses into that lie. Why is false witness being born? Because of sin, because of the malice and the hardness of men's heart. And because of that, Jesus pronounces judgment on Israel's false witness. That is his role as priest and judge. And finally, as king, Jesus executes that judgment upon Israel. The kingdom is taken from them, and he becomes a stone upon which they will dash their feet and be crushed. But here's the thing. And if you were paying attention to the hymn we sang before this sermon, you understand what Jesus does. This is the good news of the gospel, because Jesus works out all of this on himself, in the place of Israel, and ultimately in the place of us. He takes the place of the one who needs to be punished. He, takes the, he bears the death penalty for the one who needs to die. In Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1 today, we read, Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. So you may need help connecting the dots here, so let me do that. Jesus is the beloved of Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1, but so is Israel. Israel is also the beloved of Isaiah chapter 5, verse 1. Later in verse 7, we read, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel. That Jesus is the man, Jesus the man, is identified with Israel, the people as a whole, is clear from the prophet Hosea. In chapter 11, verse 1, Hosea says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So that's a reference to the exodus of the people of Israel being taken out of Egypt. But it's also a reference to Jesus Christ himself. And we, we, we see that in the birth narrative in Matthew chapter 2, verse, verses 14 and 15. We'll read this at Christmas time. Matthew writes, and Joseph rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, out of Egypt I called my son. So you see how scripture identifies Israel the people with Jesus the man. That is why he can be the substitute for Israel. That is why he can take Israel's place. That is why he can take our place. So I'm making these painstaking connections because you need to understand them in order to understand the meaning of the parable. In order to purge the evil from Israel, Jesus himself must become Israel and accept Israel's punishment on behalf of Israel. The law says if the witness is a false witness and has accused his brother falsely, then you shall do to him as he had meant to do to his brother. Israel had meant to kill Jesus, so now, so now Jesus, the Messiah, priest, and judge, must execute that same justice on Israel. The nation must die for its false witness. But here's the thing, Israel cannot die because as Paul tells us, Israel is of God. And what is of God cannot die. 
And that is what we mean when we say that Jesus fulfilled the law in taking Israel's place, in taking our place, and bearing the punishment. But it also has implications for understanding the resurrection. Because if God cannot die and Israel cannot die, then the Son of God who takes our place and dies in our place cannot die, and he must be resurrected. This is the good news of the gospel, that Jesus Christ purges the evil from us by taking our place and taking our punishment. (coughs) Jesus is our substitute by taking our place. Jesus atones for our sins by taking our punishment. And so what we need to do is we need to forget the excuses we've made in the past. We need to nail our sins to the cross, leave our old lives behind, and strain forward to what lies ahead, which is the promise of glory in a resurrected body to a life on a new earth and under a new heaven with Christ our King. Amen.